Will you turn today in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this is our sermon text for today, verses 1 to 11. And then as follow-on to Ecclesiastes 2, will you turn next to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Ecclesiastes 2. 1 to 11 is where we'll begin before turning to the 6th chapter of Matthew. King Solomon, the old, writes by the Spirit of God, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. And I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Thus far the reading of God's word in Ecclesiastes. Now let us turn to the New Testament gospel of Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the 
the eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to answer these persistent questions about the meaning of life. Now open our eyes and our minds to understand as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As each one of us must, at some point in these few short years allotted us under the sun, King Solomon in his generation faced the fundamental human question of meaning. The meaning of life. The meaning of ordinary day-to-day -day living in what sharp inquiring minds like Solomon's often consider to be a drab, predictable, dreadfully unexciting world, a dreary world in which the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place, it rises there again. A world in which all the rivers flow into the sea yet the sea is not full. A world in which everything that we see 
and do becomes in time so wearisome. Wearisome beyond words to a sharp mind that's in hot pursuit of ultimate answers. Especially a good solid answer to that question, why? What's the purpose of this? What's this life really all about? And everyone faces it eventually, or should. But unlike many of us, Solomon's approach to the question of life's meaning, his approach isn't casual, it isn't haphazard. His investigation, described here in the book of Ecclesiastes, is intensely thorough. It's intensely systematic. To find meaning in life today, lesser minds than his, simply go with the flow. Both then and now, lesser minds than his settle for whatever the latest polls might say. Lesser minds than his simply bumble along Monday through Friday and find their intellects satisfied with beer and barbecue and the big game on the weekend. That's enough for lesser minds. But King Solomon, he's got to have answers. He's got to find the answers. Why are we here? What's all this natural regularity of time and space? What's it signify? What's life all about? Dear ones, does this inquiry into the meaning of life sound at all familiar to you? Of course it does, because it's such a timeless question. It's universal. The human soul needs answers to this question, and wandering from one idea to the next, we are restless until we find them. We're restless until we find those answers. Unfortunately, they don't naturally float to the surface of all the empirical data that we take in every day. Finding those answers to the purpose and meaning of life takes a little digging. It takes work. Even my own growing up years back in the 60s and 70s, which were relatively simple years, I spent them trying to pick my way through all the spiritually disorienting fog of the late 20th century popular culture and the social and political narratives of the time, the Vietnam and post-Vietnam eras, followed by the disco era and the ever-present government schools trying to build the lives of yet another generation of Americans, build their lives on a foundation of sand. None of these public institutions or the culture at large offered me, as a growing young man, offered me anything substantial. Nothing lasting, nothing satisfactory to the mind that just wants to cut through all the extraneous circumstantial details and know why. Why am I here? 
They couldn't offer me those answers because those institutions and the lost culture of that era had nothing substantial to offer me. When it comes to ultimate answers, all you could get from any public institution was a government-approved consensus of essentially arbitrary human opinion. Western culture was in denial, is in denial. It's in this full-scale rebellion against the plain facts about Christ <clears throat> and the kingdom of God. Back in the 60s and 70s, <clears throat> if I were ever going to meet up with Jesus Christ and the amazing gospel of grace, it would never have been by means of any cultural influence on me. It took a special effort on my part, a special effort both to learn and to think. Both to learn the word of God and then carefully and deliberately to think it through. And finding answers to those fundamental questions is going to demand the same intellectual effort from you, you each of you. Because the disorienting cultural fog that enshrouds us today is even thicker than it was back in the 60s and 70s. Both for the level of biblical illiteracy and for haphazard thinking, the broad highway to hell is broader and more heavily trafficked today than it ever has been. Young people growing up today without the solid benefits of biblical training within the social framework of a stable Christian home. Aimless young people lacking curiosity, lacking any intellectual starch in their characters to think for themselves. These ill-equipped young people are the devil's easiest prey. Natural revelation took Solomon only so far as to raise the question. He observed the sun, observed the wind, observed the rivers and the sea, observed the passage of time. None of these natural phenomena answered the question of life's purpose or how we ought to live it. And of course they didn't. They have no power to answer those questions. The heavens may indeed declare the glory of God. But as to how we ought to live in response to it. For those answers we have to consult God's special revelation of himself in his written word. Because as we've sung here already today. Jehovah's perfect law restores the soul again. His testimonies sure give wisdom unto men. The precepts of the Lord are right and fill the heart with great delight. Now it was Solomon's own dad, King David, who wrote those words of Psalm 19. So Solomon is familiar with it. He knows the power of special revelation, the scriptures. 
Solomon knows the power of the scriptures to answer life's most pressing questions. In fact, being king, God's law in Deuteronomy says he is under obligation, under royal obligation to read that law every day. That's what a king does. So Solomon is far from biblical illiteracy. This man's absolutely up to date on God's special revelation, the scriptures, as they then stood nearly a thousand years before Christ. As we saw a week or two ago in 1 Kings 4.29 and following, Solomon's wisdom on just about any subject surpassed that of all the wise men of his age including his knowledge of the Bible as it then stood. And yet even so, he's struggling with this question of ultimate purpose. God's law says in unmistakable terms, do this and live. That much is clear. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Do this and live. So for Solomon, the question isn't, what shall I do to live? The question is, why should I want to do it? Why should I even want to live? What's there to live for? And dear ones, that's how vital it is to get good answers to this question about life's meaning and purpose. Because lots of people today, lots of people who are facing lots of pain, facing lots of anxiety, lots of dead ends in life, they ask themselves that question every day. Why go on living in a world like this? What's there to live for? Wouldn't suicide be more painless than what I'm having to face here every day? People are asking that. Tacitly, perhaps. Maybe not out loud. But they're having to face it. That's how important it is that we get answers that satisfy the soul. And they're not immediately apparent, as I noted before. They're not immediately apparent on the surface of whatever circumstances we're facing. So, Solomon the Wise commences his great experiment. He begins pursuing a number of avenues that might offer him some sense of spiritual satisfaction, some sense of purpose. And he begins, as many of course do, both then and now, he begins by turning to a life of unfettered hedonism. The pursuit of raw, unmitigated pleasure. Pleasure such as only kings like Solomon could only begin to afford. He writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So, 
enjoy yourself. I'm looking for personal, deep down satisfaction. I'm looking for something that's going to fill this aching void in my soul. The pursuit of wisdom as an end in itself didn't answer the need. In fact, back when I tried that route, what I found was that in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. That's where we found him. That's where we left him at the end of chapter 1. Those were his conclusions at the time. So, now he decides to put away the books, put away the life of contemplation. It's time to have some fun. It's time to party. Let's give it a try. And yet, this is interesting. This is interesting. From the very beginning, he makes this important point. I am not going to let this going for the gusto deteriorate into the unbridled dissipation that you see so much of today. Remember, Solomon's on a scientific quest to discover what it is that makes life worth living. Maybe it's pleasure. That's the hypothesis now. Maybe it's pleasure. So first, I explored with my body how to stimulate, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. He begins his experiment with alcohol. But he walks a very narrow line here, doesn't he? Whenever the research scientist decides to take on the additional role of the lab rat in his own experiment, Clinical objectivity usually becomes an issue. Remember what that did to Dr. Jekyll. Yet somehow Solomon finds grace to hold even his own personal behavior at arm's length and ask the question, what's this wine doing for me? Do I feel better about life? Well, Maybe I do. But is it answering the questions I need to have answered? And his conclusion, whatever it is that makes life meaningful, wine isn't it. As for this pleasure and all other pleasures under the sun, he says, what does it accomplish? So he moves on. He then takes on the far more useful and constructive pleasures of architecture, horticulture, landscaping, improving the earth, and impressing on the natural environment his own royal stamp of artistry. That's what he does next. I enlarged my works. 
I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Makes you want to visit the place, doesn't it? Makes you want to taste those choice fruits and splash around in the water and tread the soft winding forest paths. But to the question, will it fill the void of a man looking for answers to life's ultimate questions? The answer is no. The wine didn't do it, and these beautiful works, they're not doing it either. These things don't have the power to satisfy a need that big. So his best wines don't do it for him. His best works didn't do it. What about his acquisition of compounding wealth? After all, he seemed to have the Midas touch, didn't he? Solomon's 40-year reign in Jerusalem, we know, was in many ways the high watermark of, the, of Israel's monarchy. At least economically it was. 1 Kings 10.27 tells us this man made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowlands. Throughout history, men and nations have measured wealth in various ways, of course. <clears throat> and what passes for wealth today, fiat currency or paper money, this is probably an historical aberration. We are living in a time of historical aberration when it comes to wealth. And we do well to brace for the day when someone finally realizes this and the bubble bursts. But back to the point, in an earlier age than ours, people measured wealth by other yardsticks than we do today. For instance, the number and furnishings of your houses, your lands, your cattle, your servants, your wives, your children. That's exactly the way it was back in Abraham's time. That's the way it was in Solomon's time. That's the way it was in much of the New Testament. And even up to the present time in some parts of the world, that's how wealth is measured. It was exactly so in this part of the world here in Texas until well into the 19th century. It's not the money you have in the bank. It's the ranch you own. It's the estate that you've built, the estate that you're building. So now we're looking at whether life might be about the acquisition of wealth. I bought male and female slaves, he says. And I had home-born slaves. Here's an example of that compounding wealth that I mentioned a moment ago, because not only do many hands produce greater results for 
the Solomonic kingdom, when those male and female slaves marry one another, as they not uncommonly did, when the slaves marry one another, the children they bear are born into slavery as well. They're home-born slaves, or as the original has it, they are sons of the house, and they are increasing in Solomon's house. So in these ways, Solomon's wealth compounded over time. Exodus 21, if you're interested, lays out God's law on this particular point about slaves, the increase of them, and how to treat them. The increase of Solomon's house is matched by the increase of his flocks and herds. And he speaks of the silver and gold and other treasures coming into his coffers as the nations round about Israel were bringing their tribute money to him. Wealth like this, accumulating wealth, this gives a man the leisure to give himself to the more sensual pleasures as well. And Solomon doesn't forget to mention them here in verse 8. Those singers that he mentions, the male and the female singers, they aren't the Levitical singers in the temple. These are singers he acquired for his own entertainment. And then there were the concubines, here called the pleasures or the luxuries of men. Luxuries. Typically, of course, a man needs a wife, one wife, a wife to help him in his godly calling. That's the way it was in the beginning. That's been his way, his order of things. Lamech, you remember, in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech departed from this godly order in Genesis 4.19, where we read that Lamech took two wives. For the first time in history, a man took two wives, Ada and Zillah. How this arrangement worked out for the three of them were left to speculate. But the Old Testament's replete with other examples of polygamy, even of otherwise godly men. And it never seems to have worked out very well for them, did it? King Solomon, we know, had not two like Lamech, or four, like Jacob, but 700 wives. Most of them, no doubt, for the cementing of his politics, not for the pleasure of their company. For pleasure, Solomon also kept 300 concubines. All of which is to say that in his relentless pursuit of pleasure, Solomon was literally living the dream of many young men. He's living the dream. The wine, the women, the song. Solomon has it all. He has it all on demand as much as any man in any age could stand, and yet somehow, being immersed in it, he was able, 
by his wisdom, he was able by grace to evaluate it, evaluate the effect it all had on him. Because remember, this isn't pleasure for pleasure's sake. It's conducting a test. It's pleasure for the sake of learning something vitally important, both for himself and for us. Will the pursuit of pleasure, even at this level, will the pursuit of that pleasure satisfy the human soul? Will it answer the need of someone looking for life's answers? And King Solomon records his own findings and the answer to that question in verse 11. You and I, with our far more limited resources to squander in our own lives, you and I have to decide this matter for ourselves. This headlong pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of our own various interests, the pursuit of a career, the pursuit of the opposite sex, the accumulation of all our various toys in life, does that answer the deepest need of your soul? Does it answer the question of life's ultimate purpose and meaning? Like I said, you've got to come to your own conclusions on this. But I suggest to you that heeding the conclusions of the wisest of men is going to save you untold expense and trouble and heartache. Listen to God's servant, Solomon. He considered all his activities which his hands had done and the labor that he exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. Of course, I don't need to tell you that these are the very things that people are chasing after today. And the Holy Spirit, speaking by Solomon here, tells us they're a dead end. They're a dead end, all of them. So is there a good answer to that one great question we're asking, that Solomon was asking, and now that we're asking? Is there a good answer to it? Yes, there is. But if we're going to find that good answer, we have to look beyond the wisdom of Solomon. We have to look to those thousand years of revelation that unfolded progressively after him. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon or wealth. You cannot serve them both. For this reason I say to you, don't be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink or for your body as to what you shall put on. Isn't life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, he says, that they don't sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit 
to his lifespan. He goes on to say, and why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory, Solomon didn't clothe himself like one of these. Don't be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. And that's our final answer. What's this life all about? It's about the seeking and the finding of your heavenly father who feeds the sparrows and clothes the lilies for the pleasure of knowing him we live and move and have our being for the pleasure of his kingdom the pleasure of his righteousness a pleasure beside which all the pleasures of this world under the sun fade to black Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so kind to us in lavishing upon us all these good things, our food, our clothing, all the things that we enjoy in life, the things that give us pleasure, you lavish them upon us. And then you took the additional step of teaching us that life consists not in those things, but in knowing you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I pray for each one here. I pray for each child here, that as they come to years of adulthood, they might not reach that point without first having wrestled through this question and come to the conclusion that to know you, to know your kingdom, your righteousness, to know you through Jesus Christ, this is what their life is all about. Equip them, we pray, equip their souls and their minds with this knowledge and equip them along the way with all these other things that we need. We ask these things of you now because we are entirely dependent upon you for them. Grant them, we pray, therefore, in Jesus' name. Amen.